the Lord's Supper, what exactly is it? Have you ever spent time actually asking yourself, what is the Lord's Supper all about? What's the meaning of it? What's the significance of it? Well, I received a question from a listener about the Lord's Supper, and this episode, I want to share it with you and talk about some important things we can take away from it. Welcome to episode number 66 of the Better Bible Reading Podcast. Here we are again, still going strong, and uh, I hope we are because I feel like we're just getting started. I feel like I have just kind of gotten my feet used to the cold water, as it were, of podcasting, and I really have a lot of plans going forward, and so um, every time I release a new episode, I always get excited about what's to come, and maybe you find yourself asking the question, what is to come? Because I feel like you say that almost every episode, and that could be true. Maybe I build a whole lot of momentum about this podcast and don't do a good job always of putting out up-to-date follow-ups. Well, one of those things um, that is kind of holding me back from doing what I want to do is that I am doing full-time school right now, At the time of this recording, I have just a couple more weeks to go until a break, and what that's going to do is that's going to allow me uh, to have some time freed up to really finish some behind-the-scenes, under-the-radar projects that I've been working on for uh, the Better Bible Reading brand over at BetterBibleReading.com, and also some additional things for this actual podcast feed. Either way, it's good news because it means you can expect a whole lot more content coming your way, uh, even beyond these uh, every Thursday episodes. So, just wanted to say that up front uh, because I really do appreciate your listening support. My patrons over at patreon.com, I appreciate your financial support. I don't take any of the support uh, for this podcast lightly. It really does mean the world. And one of the things that really gets me excited about what I do is when I get some feedback. And it just so happens that I do have some feedback from a listener by the name of Kyle. And Kyle has sent in a question. Kyle is an awesome guy because he has taken my advice, which I put out over on the website. If you were to read the notes from these episodes, or if you just listen to them, you'll hear me say, Uh, From time to time, please send in some questions if you have any upcoming episodes you would like me to cover. And so Kyle has done this. So kudos to you, Kyle. And Kyle has asked a question about the Lord's Supper. I'm going to read what Kyle wrote to me via email, and then we're going to spend some time talking about it. Okay, so I hope you're excited. Here's a little kind of Bible question and answer happening here. Hopefully a debut of many future episodes uh, formatted this way, because I love these kind of conversations. And so here's what Kyle said. He said, Hi, Kevin. I was wondering your thoughts on the Lord's Supper. Nearly all Reformed and non-Reformed Protestant churches will say the Lord's Supper is something we do within the confines of a holy assembly to remind us of the deeds of Christ. I've recently, however, had 
some second thoughts on this entire paradigm. Is it really to remind us, or is it to remind God? All of the memorials in the Bible were to remind God to act on his covenant promises, and he does. In Leviticus 2, the grain offering, or tribute offering, was given as a memorial portion to Yahweh. It seems the memorial portion seemed to remind God of the bloody sacrifice of the burnt offering, or ascension. I was wondering your thoughts, if any, on this topic. Thanks. All right, first off, thank you, Kyle, for this question, and I really do appreciate the way that you framed this question. To me, it shows that you have actually spent some time thinking about this. It's a very kind of uh, reflective question, um, and so I do appreciate that, and uh, hopefully I can shed some light on this. Um, I do have some thoughts (laughs) on this topic to answer your question. Uh, Obviously, I do, because that's why I'm doing this episode. Uh, But Kyle, I'm going to assume that you may have already settled some of what I'm going to say in your own mind, but I do want to give a thorough answer to this question to not only help you, but also the rest of the listeners as well. Okay, so let me start off with a disclaimer. I believe in the infallibility and the inerrancy of the Bible. Now, what that means is, I'm convinced that the Bible does not contain errors, doesn't contain contradictions, there's no misinformation in the Bible of of any kind. And this belief of mine is based on my view of God. The Bible is God's Word, and because God is perfect in all of His attributes, that also means that his word is not going to be false. So that first question, first question we have to ask and be able to answer is, what is the Bible? My answer to that is, the Bible is God's word. Well, what do we know about God? Well, God is perfect. God doesn't lie. And since God doesn't lie, that means we can take what is said about God or what is said in this case about the Lord's Supper, or even the concept of offerings or the concept of reminders, to use your language there, we can take those, whatever we're told of that, does reflect God's character, and it reflects what we should believe about him and about ourselves in light of that, okay? So, with that kind of background in in mind, I don't embrace what is called open theism. Now, here's some more terminology, right? I said the Bible's infallible, the Bible's inerrant, I'm also saying now I don't embrace open theism. These are big terms, but they're really less complicated than uh, just how they sound. Open theism is a view that has gained traction within evangelicalism in the last couple decades. And this view basically says that God learns and processes information in a linear fashion. Now, the reason that's important is because, in this view, it means that God doesn't know the future because the future hasn't happened yet. People who embrace this idea or this concept of open theism will try to say that it doesn't make God less than all-knowing. Instead, they'll say God knows everything that has happened, but he can't know or not know something that hasn't happened yet because it's not yet a reality. 
So it's kind of a slippery slope, isn't it, of the way that we describe God. And those who would try to parade this idea of open theism, right, they get around the issue of as far as God remembering something or forgetting something, uh, because they say, well, God processes things in a linear format, in terms of a timeline, just like we do. And therefore, we're not going to say that God forgets things. We're not going to say that God doesn't know things, because the only things that God doesn't know are things that haven't happened yet, and therefore, those things are not yet things. They're just potential things. Well, as fancy or as so-called methodical as this view is, it's really just a bunch of garbage. The reason is because the fatal mistake of it is that it puts God away from his distinct distinction as creator, and it places him on a level playing field, just like us, the creatures. One of the most important distinctions to ever make is the distinction between God and everything else. Because you have God, and then you have everything else. God is in a category all by himself. There's nothing else that lives up to who God is. There's nothing else that can even compare, right? Because God is eternal. God is not linear. God does not have a beginning. God does not exist inside time. God exists outside of time. The Bible tells us again and again, he is the beginning and the end. There is no such thing as God learning information he did not already know, because the whole concept of God learning something would mean that God changes. Of course, the Bible tells us again that God does not change. And so these are really important kind of key things to keep in mind before we start moving to general conversation about the Lord's Supper and any other kind of doctrine. But I wanted to take this opportunity to kind of show you the the type of theology or the type of kind of doctrine rehearsal, to put a phrase on it, that everybody does, right? If you ask anybody this question, they're not going to necessarily answer it the way that I've started to answer. And I haven't even answered the question, right? I've just talked about the initial things we should be thinking about. People aren't going to say this kind of thing out loud, and I wouldn't expect that. But all of us have to do this, because when we're asked a question about God and about ourselves, what we do is we rehearse the doctrines that we believe or don't believe in order to inform our answer. Now, that's what I just did. So what I just did is I started out by confining myself to particular conclusions, or at least I should say I've limited myself from coming to conclusions that would contradict things that I know to be true about God. For example, that he's eternal, that he's not inside time, he's not linear like we are, he does not have a beginning, he does not learn things that he did not already previously know. He's the source and fountainhead of all knowledge and wisdom. Okay, so 
That is a really important thing to clarify in our own minds before we move on to actually answer particular questions. But you asked me a particular question, so now I'm going to actually answer that with those things in mind. Again, this is a great question because what it does is it brings us to a conclusion that really should stir up our affections. This is not just a knowledge game. This is not a Bible trivia uh, exercise. This instead is a question about one of the most important things that Christians gather together to do. Let me start out by reading what Paul says about the Lord's Supper. There's a few places that the Lord's Supper is kind of alluded to, uh, but there's one explicit passage that you all should know if anybody were to ask you about the Lord's Supper. If you wanted to know where do you go when you want to know about the Lord's Supper, well, the answer to that is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is split in half. The first half deals with head coverings, very controversial, very um, animated conversations happen uh, with how people conclude what the meaning of that whole passage is. But then you move on to the more well-known section of 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse number 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Okay, so at the outset, the best way to understand the Lord's Supper in terms of what it actually is, going back to your question, you said, is the Lord's Supper to remind us or is it to remind God? Well, according to Paul, the primary way that we should categorize the Lord's Supper in our minds is that it is a remembrance for our sake, for our benefit. Jesus gave the instruction to the disciples at the Last Supper, and Paul brings those and appropriates them for the church, that we are to follow that pattern when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, and we are to do that. We are to do the practice of taking the bread, which represents the body, and taking the wine, which represents the blood, and both of those are described as a remembrance for our benefit, for our sake. Now, let me continue with what Paul says, because I presume that you already know this, Kyle. I presume that you already know that the Bible does explicitly give this sacrament of the Lord's Supper as a remembrance for our sake. Because the way you framed your question was, you said, is it really to remind us 
or is it to remind God? I'm taking that to mean you understand we can at least surmise from this passage of Scripture that it is for our sake to remember. But I think what you're asking is, is there also, in addition to this, is there also some mention, some correlation of God being reminded, because that's why you brought up the concept of offering, and so on and so forth, okay? Here is what the Bible says. Continuing on from where I left off, I'm going to read verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then it moves on to say this. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Now this is a really, really fascinating passage, because... Even though the Lord's Supper is for us to remember the finished work of Jesus Christ, there is, alongside that call for us to remember the finished work of Jesus, there is a reminder that we are to live in light of the finished work of Christ. One of the ways that Paul mentions our salvation is that we have been saved for good works. And that doesn't mean merely holding the door for somebody when you are on your way into the post office and you see somebody behind you, so you open the door for them and let them go ahead. That's nice. That's a good gesture. That is a loving action. However, that is not distinctively Christian. That is being nice. That is being a good citizen. That is being friendly. Rather, We are called to be set apart. We are called to be holy. We are called to be sanctified. We are to be different from the world. We are to be set apart as God's peculiar people. We are different from the rest of the world. We are not the world, but we are in the midst of the world. And it doesn't take long when we, belonging to a different kingdom, begin to look weird or look annoying to the rest of the world because we have different standards of morality, we have a higher calling, we have a commission that we've been given to by our King, Jesus Christ. And so we are supposed to keep that in mind. We are not supposed to approach the Lord's Supper with a haphazard attitude, or with an indifference to what it is. It is not just a ceremony. If it were just a ceremony, then the issue of the heart wouldn't really matter. It would just be whether or not we're doing it the right way in terms of formality. But that is not what Paul's teaching. Instead, he says we have to discern the body. Now, that could mean discern the body of the Lord. It also could mean discerning our own bodies, discerning our lives in light of what it actually is that we're proclaiming. Because Paul says when we are doing this, we're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. 
we are collectively, as Christians, reminding ourselves, reminding one another of what Jesus Christ has done for us. We are proclaiming alongside brothers and sisters as we drink the wine, as we eat the bread, we are making a proclamation. We have been instituted as the Church of Jesus Christ because of what he has done. Okay, so again, just driving that point home that the Lord's Supper is meant to be a remembrance of what Christ has done for us. Now, moving to the less clear, or at least the less explicit element of that is, is it appropriate to say that we are reminding God? Now, with all of those disclaimers that I gave at the beginning of the episode, with those in mind, not leaving those or casting those aside, my answer to your question is yes, but it depends on what you mean, right? (laughs) It depends on what you mean, because we could say that Jesus' work on the cross is exactly what he declared it to be when he said, it is finished. Jesus died once for all for our sins. Yet, in time and space, he still has ascended to heaven and is at the right hand of God the Father. He is operating As our high priest, he intercedes for us day and night. Now, why does he do this if the work is already finished? Why the need to continue to intercede for us if all of our sins have been atoned for on the cross? That's a really important question. Perhaps it's a different angle than what you uh, initially thought of, Kyle, when you asked the question. Because remember, there is, in the Old Testament, with all of these offerings, there, for example, you mentioned the grain offering, the tribute offering, the memorial portions, the burnt offering, all of those speak of a perpetual practice. And probably the best place to go to to have a good summary and explanation of all these things uh, for listeners, um, check out the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, because that really does uh, make a good, um, appropriate conclusion that we should be coming to when we think about all of the sacrifices um, so definitely want to point you in that direction. Um, I'm going to read a, just a, a verse from there um, to tell you like where I'm getting my conclusions from here. So in Hebrews 10, the way that everything is moving in this conclusion, it's kind of hard to even jump in right in the middle of it, but I'm not going to take the whole episode to just read um, this passage. But one of the things that the author to the Hebrews says about all of these offerings is in verse number three, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder 
of sins every year. And then he says this, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So there's a reminder. And then speaking of Jesus as the high priest, backing up now to chapter 7, says this, the former priests were, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Okay, that's a really important takeaway as well, because the whole function of the high priest, the whole function of these sacrifices, was to remind the people every single year that sin needed to be atoned for. Even though they were making these sacrifices as God had prescribed, it was not these sacrifices that were forgiving them of their sins or atoning for their sins. The author of the Hebrews remembered chapter 10, verse 3 and 4, that these sacrifices cannot take away sins. Instead, these were outward acts of obedience that reflected hearts that drew near to God by faith. Now, maybe that's problematic to you. If you're a long-time listener, you'll remember the multiple weeks that we spent talking about covenant theology and dispensationalism. If you missed those episodes, I do want to direct you to betterbiblereading.com and find those, because one of the crucial elements there is answering the question, were people in the Old Testament saved by keeping the law and being obedient, or were they saved by faith? And the answer to that is they were saved by faith. The New Testament labors this point again and again, and even to follow the logic of the author of, of the Hebrews here, he gets to chapter 11, and everybody knows that, that spent time in church, as the faith chapter, right? 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter in the Bible. Hebrews 11, the faith chapter in the Bible. And who does he use as the test cases of faith? It is all of these people in the Old Testament. They are examples of what it means to live by faith and to seek God in that way. Okay. I'm not going on a rabbit trail. I promise I am bringing this all to a conclusion. The difference between Jesus' office of priest and the office of priest in the Old Testament is that the office of priest was to again and again appear before God, but the reason for that was because sacrifices had to continually be made Number one, because the priests themselves were sinners, and they had to be cleansed before they could even enter 
into the Holy of Holies before the presence of God. But they also went representing the rest of the people. And since they were sinners, the wages of sin is death, they died, and then new priests had to be appointed, and that whole line of descendants of priests continued all the way to the time of Christ. But he is a different kind of high priest. He entered into heaven itself, and he entered into the presence of God, and he intercedes for us on the one hand as a representation before the presence of God that our sins have been dealt with. So in that symbolism, in that representation, in that reality of who Jesus is as our high priest, you could say, cautiously, that it is to remind God. I think a better better terminology instead of reminding God is that it's actually a proclamation. It's an eternal, it's an everlasting proclamation of it is finished. So Jesus says it is finished on the cross, but his continued office as high priest forever and ever is that forever and ever proclamation to say it is finished once for all. I hope that makes sense, because if you think about it, there's no way that Jesus continues to serve as high priest to continually atone for our sins, because there's going to come a day as Christians that will be glorified and resurrected bodies and will no longer sin. There's going to be a time where we no longer sin. Can you even fathom that? It's hard to even comprehend. But yet it says that he will remain a high priest for as long as he remains. And since he remains forever, since he's eternal, his office as high priest is also eternal. It's forever and ever. So that's important to note. But the most crucial part of this whole thing is that the high priests had the great privilege of being in the presence of God, being in the Holy of Holies, as it was called. So Jesus, what he does, going back to Hebrews, verse 25 of chapter 7, consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You know what's so important here is the fact that Jesus gives us the benefit, gives us the perk, gives us the privilege that comes with the high priest is that level of closeness, that level of communion, that level of intimacy with the Lord. There is no veil, there's no partition, there's no separation. We, based on the perfection of Jesus, based on all of his merits, we are able to enjoy the same closeness, 
the same intimacy, the same fellowship with God, because, as you read there, those who draw near to God through him. His function as high priest, again and again, day after day, forever and ever, for our sake, is to always bring us near to God. Now, what's so important here is that we know in the earthly analogies of this holy temple in heaven, the author of Hebrews actually says in a fascinating way that the things on earth were actually copies or just symbols of the real thing, heaven itself, God's dwelling place, the temple in heaven, as it were. What you see in the Old Testament is just speaking to that. It's just examples, but the reality of it all is the true temple, Jesus before God, and bringing us into that fellowship because he is our high priest and continues to be, so we continue to have fellowship with God. But what's fascinating is that the place where God is said to descend and dwell with his people, we know, based on the Old Testament, is the temple, or you could say the tabernacle, the tent. In the early days of Israel, before they were formally instituted into their land and built a permanent temple, they dwelled in tents, and you had the tabernacle that was set up, and that's where the priest would go into the tent with God, and then Eventually, you had the permanent structure of the temple built for the people of Israel. In both cases, the high priest entered into that, to God's presence. Now, what is so important for us is to realize the New Testament again and again speaks of ourselves, Christians, as God's temple. We have the Holy Spirit. We have God himself dwelling with us. Jesus Christ has made us holy. He has cleansed us. He has given us that wonderful privilege. He has met all the demands and all the requirements and all the purification that we need in order for God to dwell with us. How close does God dwell with us as close as the Holy Spirit himself dwells with us? The Bible says that we receive the Holy Spirit and our bodies are being made as a dwelling place for God. You could say as a temple, as a tent for God to dwell in. And we dwell with him in that close proximity, that close fellowship. That is why Paul says, 1 Corinthians 11, we have a responsibility then to discern the body of Christ. What is it that Jesus has done for us? Well, he's made all of that possible that I just said. He's not just forgiven us of our sins and died as a sacrifice in our place just so we could go to heaven, although that is a tremendous gift. But it's also so that we could dwell with God, so that we would no longer be separated from him. The communion between God would no longer be severed. Isn't it fascinating that that is actually what we call the Lord's Supper? It is 
communion. It is the Lord's Supper. It is our time to fellowship with him. It's our time to speak of the reality that he has promised to dwell with us forever. And it's also time for us to reflect on what Jesus has done to make all this possible. That is why we cannot just haphazardly eat the bread, drink the wine, call it a day. Good job, we had our little ceremony. The Lord's Supper is certainly more than a ceremony. It is not what Roman Catholicism teaches in that the body becomes Jesus, the bread becomes Jesus' body, the wine becomes Jesus' blood, and then we sacrifice him again. That is certainly not the case, but it is more than a memorial. It is more than just remembering. I'd love to do another episode soon to talk about the different views of the Lord's Supper. Uh, That goes beyond my time limits for this particular episode. But I say all that to bring the idea of the high priest, to bring the idea of dwelling with God, and to bring that all into play with the Lord's Supper. Because you could say, It is to remind God in the sense that it is a proclamation to him of finished work. It is not that we continually tell him because he continually forgets, but instead it is that Jesus' proclamation is on repeat, if you want to put it that way. As long as he's high priest, it continues to be a proclamation, I come here on behalf of all of my people whom I have died for. That is the proclamation that continues for as long as he is priest. As long as that is in effect, we have fellowship with God. And of course, it is in effect for all eternity. We're saved for eternity. We have eternal life. But in the same way, it is, I think, primarily a reminder to us. That is why we're to discern. That is why we are to realize that what we're doing is we're proclaiming the Lord's death. We're making a proclamation. We're reminding one another, and also we are reminding ourselves individually of what Jesus has done for us. He says, take and eat, take and drink, and do these things in remembrance of me. Well, that wraps things up for this episode. Again, Kyle, really do appreciate your question, your willingness to reach out to me. And uh, I really do think that your question is also a good segue to just calling all of you as listeners. Uh, Number one, if you want to know more about the interplay between sacrifices in the Old Testament and fulfillment in the New Testament, I just think the best place to go is Hebrews. You just can't go wrong reading the rich conclusions that we should be coming to as believers in light of what Christ has done and how it fulfills, not overthrows, what is said in the Old Testament. And secondly, if you enjoyed this episode, uh, probably the ones in the future will be a little shorter than this. Uh, But I wanted to really take my time on this one, being that it's the first official question from listeners, um, tell you kind of the way that I'm going to do this. And certainly the, the more I get, the more I'll be glad to do. So that's where you can submit your questions to me. The easiest way to do that is to just email me, kevin 
at betterbiblereading.com. Send me your questions. I would love to hear from you. Would love to do an episode or even a rapid fire one where I can do a whole lot of different questions at once. Either way, just look forward to hearing from you. And I really do appreciate all of your support. Hope you all have a great rest of your day. And thank you for listening to the Better Bible Reading Podcast. I'm Kevin Morris. Take care.